Well, Father, I thank you that we can come together as a church and hear your word for us today. I pray that this will be a deep encouragement that you'll use this to equip our church uh, to go and make disciples of all nations. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his ministry. I thank you for even Luke writing it down so that we can behold how he did so. So, Lord, may this be a deep encouragement uh, to us and go out and tell the nations. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as you could probably tell by my prayer, there's going to be an evangelistic emphasis to this uh, message, as it's kind of been a theme uh, in our church. In fact, our Iron Man dinner that we had this past Friday night is kind of built around the theme, introduced the theme, Men on a Mission, where we kind of see a real good opportunity going forward to re-engage a culture that's kind of been atomized and scattered because of the pandemic. And as people come together, as people are more willing to be a part of crowds, as people had to reckon with various anxieties and other things, I, I, we, we sense that there's a real golden opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting down with some pastor friends, and we were just talking about some of the opportunities that we have and and... Just what are the different strategies for sharing our faith and equipping our church to do so? And one friend shared two basic strategies that he gathered from Scripture. The first is the go and tell, right? You equip people to go and tell others about Jesus. And so what it looked like at a church is you have evangelistic training, you help people memorize key Bible verses, you kind of get them to practice, be comfortable, so they can go and tell people outside the church about the truth of the gospel that Jesus saves sinners. Now, another way of, of facilitating church evangelistic ministry is to come and see, right? You see this in the disciples, right? Come and see who I found when uh, Peter's brother brings Peter to Jesus, and so come and see as you put on an evangelistic event. You might have VBS. You might have some sort of conference, special speaker. Somebody gives a testimony. You bring them in so they can come and see. So the question is, which one is right? What is the right way of sharing your faith? It's kind of a trick question. So the more I think about it, it's almost like the game of golf. In a given golf bag... You have a putter, you have drivers, irons, wedges. And one of the fun things about golf, I'm not a very good golfer by but so I have heard, is knowing which club to use and when. You don't use a putter to get out of a sand trap. You don't tee off with a pitching wedge, well, unless it's a par three course. You don't use a driver in certain circumstances. Do you know what I'm saying? So depending on the terrain, approach, and a host of other factors, you choose which club to use and when. And so when it comes to, let's say, gospel ministry, there is a certain gospel message we want to get across, where our objective is to bring people to a point where they understand the gospel well enough that they can reject or accept it, right? We, you want them to understand the gospel, but what approach you take would vary on who you are, who you're talking to, and what is the context, right? If we're over at the Pacific Ocean and three engines of the airplane are on fire, my gospel presentation will be a little bit different, right? Than talking to the neighbors and bringing them a plate of cookies. 
And when we look at the gospel of Luke, what we see is not just Jesus who lived the perfect life and then died. He gives us a model of ministry. And I want to turn to Luke chapter 5, 27 to 32, and you see how Jesus doesn't have a one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism. He, he uses what I call strategic evangelism. In fact, in this passage, we see three different strategies. I'll see if you can pick them up. Of course, they're on the outline behind me. Don't cheat. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, this is the call of Levi, and it kind of rounds out in a very interesting chapter. After Jesus announces his intention, right, which is to go and preach the good news to the poor, to liberate the captives and those who are oppressed, you see him begin to call various disciples. He approaches Peter. He facilitates a miraculous catch of fish. Peter falls down like he's a dead man because if Jesus knows where the fish are, he knows the condition of his heart. And Jesus says, from now on, you will be catching men. I will make you a fisher of men. Peter is to be his apprentice. James and John join the merry band of disciples. And then as we move on, we see different events where Jesus is catching men. He, um, you, you see him offering grace to the disgusting, where he heals a paralytic, where he heals a, a leper, and then he heals a paralytic. And, and he is catching men by doing amazing things and teaching the truth of God's word. And here we see him catch another man. And as he catches this man, this man begins his man-catching mission as well. And in all of this, you see Jesus, the evangelist, at work. And from this passage, I see three basic strategies that he employs. He uses the direct approach, the relational approach, and then the confrontational approach. And what's fascinating is he has the same objective, but depending on who he's talking to and what the situation is, his approach varies. And so when you look at sharing your faith, there's not a one-size-fits-all for everybody. You might specialize in one over the other, but there are some unifying principles that we find in this passage that shape why we choose this club and not the other, okay? So that's what we're going to talk about today is strategic evangelism. And as I do you probably have a number of people in your life. I think all of us have a short list of people that we're praying for, interceding for, people that we think we want to talk to. There are some people who we haven't met yet who will be given a wonderful opportunity. Who knows? But there are different ways of approaching different people provided that the gospel is clearly proclaimed you're always going to be successful. So let's look at the first approach, the direct approach. 
okay, the direct approach. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Sitting at a tax booth, he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, Levi, as we know from the Gospel of Matthew, where the same account is recorded, is none other than Matthew. You know, Peter had another name. What's Peter's other name? You guys know? Simon, Simon Peter. It's very common to have two names. And so this would be Levi Matthew or Matthew Levi. I'm not quite sure which is which. But he had two names, and he was a tax collector. And he was a tax collector who was sitting at a booth. Now, for those of you who don't know too much about tax collections, I mean, we all have an aversion to paying our taxes because we feel impoverished as we do so. But it was a different animal back then because of the way taxes were collected. What would happen is various enterprises would bid on a tax franchise. We want the ability to tax Capernaum. Specifically, we want the customs tax. And we will bid this amount of money. You are guaranteed to get 200 denarii for this, for giving us this enterprise. And so the city officials would say, okay, it's yours. They'd pay the 200 denarii. And do you know how they made a profit? By collecting more than the 200. And they had all kinds of creative ways of trying to extract a little bit extra from the populace. And, and naturally, these people would not be that popular. And so Levi is a lower level one. He's not like the bigwig. That's Zacchaeus. He's manning a booth. He's kind of a customs tax collector. And so when, uh, let's say, Peter, James, and John would bring in their haul of fish, he would inspect and they'd have to pay a certain amount. He would gather the collection tax. And he was in a bit of crisis because tax collectors, it was kind of a dirty profession. When they had to basically bilk people for the extra money, it created a crisis of conscience. And this new movement, which was introduced by John the Baptist, began to teach things contrary to their profession. In Luke 3, 12 through 13, tax collectors also came to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said to them, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Well, the gig is up in that case. And so Levi, if he's hearing this, which he probably was because Jesus was basically a, a rock star in Israel at that time, is being confronted with, well, the darkness of his own profession. And then Jesus approaches him. The Jesus who he knows has healed many people whose teaching has energized the synagogues, this Jesus comes to him, and, and he's not coming to pay taxes. He's actually coming to collect. And he looks at Levi and says, follow me. And you can almost see Levi doing, making sure there's nobody behind him. Because why would Jesus want a tax collector to follow him? And there's all kinds of reasons why it wouldn't make sense for Levi, Matthew, to follow Jesus. Number one, when you leave the tax business, you're out. It's like quitting a job with not giving two weeks' notice, right? When you're out, you're basically burning the ships. You're not coming back. 
Matthew, from what we know, had lived a very comfortable life. Later on, he's able to throw a great feast because the tax business was pretty good to him. All the schmoozing and the whining and dining and all that got him this honored place. And for him to walk away is to leave it all behind. There's not going to be a job waiting for him. When you leave the gang, when you're out, you're out. When you leave the mafia, they don't let you back in. Secondly, he would have no backup plan when he's out. If the tax collection, if this whole discipleship thing doesn't work out, he couldn't go back to being a tax officer or tax collector again. In fact, nobody would take him because that occupation was so despised. Have you guys ever heard of the term Kiesling? It comes from the last name of a man named Vidkun Kiesling. He was a Norwegian politician who, when the Nazis invaded Norway, decided that it would be expedient to basically collaborate with the Nazi rulers. And so he was a tool of the Third Reich to oppress his own people. He was a traitor. And so despised he was in Norway and internationally that the Dutch and the French used that term Kiesling to describe collaborators in their own country. You see, he was despised because he was an agent of an evil empire to oppress his own people. And that's, and that's Levi. And so if the tax collection thing didn't work out, if following Jesus didn't work out, Who's going to give him a job? You think about the most hated people in our society? And I'm not going to name them because it will even make you squirm. If they get released from prison, who's going to want to give them a job? And thirdly, it doesn't make sense because in, in Levi's mind, why would Jesus want him? Why would Jesus want him? I mean, he's a tax collector. People like Jesus did not associate with people like him. And yet Jesus cuts through all of that by taking a direct approach. You, Levi, Matthew, you, you follow me. I want you to follow me. Verse 28. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, I would imagine that there was some consideration and build-up to this. You probably heard of Jesus' teaching, considered it, but there was something about the direct approach that Jesus takes where he is confronted with a moment of decision, right? What are you going to do when Jesus comes calling for you? You follow me. And in my experience, sometimes a direct approach is, is kind of needed. You talk to somebody for a while, it's very clear that they know and they understand the gospel, but there's just this, this little holdup. You know, I've just sinned so much in my life. I'm going to try to clean myself up first and then go. Uh, you know, I just don't feel like my faith is strong enough right now to follow Christ, so I'm going to wait for it to strengthen, and then I'll go ahead and, and, and follow. I mean, there's a point in time when you just say, listen, 
commit to Christ, follow him in faith, and let's let him work it out. Sometimes when people are right there and they're just lacking the commitment, there is a sense where you just take the direct approach and you make the issue the issue. When it's clear that it's not because they don't understand the gospel, they do understand it. It's just an issue of the will. You don't say, follow me. You say, follow Christ. Follow Christ. That's the direct approach. Now, it's interesting, after taking the direct approach, Jesus takes a more relational approach as, as Levi facilitates the following. Verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. So he goes from go and tell, where Jesus is going and tell people to follow him, to Levi facilitating a come and see. So he, he throws a party with all of his rowdy friends, tax collectors and sinners, right? When you are rejected by high society, you have lowbrow friends. So you have the tax collectors, and then you have sinners, so what's meant by the sinners? Well, here's the words of one commentator. This is the list. Gamblers, moneylenders, people who race doves for sport, people who trade on the Sabbath years, thieves, the violent, shepherds, and of course, tax collectors. And so he, he brings them to his house and he throws a great feast. Now, this is the first dinner that Jesus has in Luke. Well, at least that's recorded. And, and what's interesting is some of the most significant conversations and showdowns take place around the dinner table. Uh, when there wasn't really entertainment, there was entertaining. And what people would do, if you had the resources is you'd bring a group together for a common meal. You didn't want to make this group too big because you wanted everyone to be connected to each other. And so you'd share food together, you'd share drinks together, and you'd have this time of camaraderie. And they'd often invite a special guest who would speak on a general topic, and then there would be a discussion. So... If they were to follow protocol, Levi would extend an invitation one or two days in advance. People would gradually show up, and when they did, one of Levi's servants, again, the tax business was pretty good to him, would you know, remove his shoes, wash his feet, he'd recline at the table, they'd all eat and enjoy a meal together, and when they were done eating and they cleared away the food, they would drink wine, and Jesus would speak to them. So they're sharing drinks talking about what Jesus wants them to talk about. And in this back and forth, we see that there is this relational element to how Jesus is going about telling them about the kingdom of God. And, and frankly, you know, this is something that is a very, uh, that's very uh, repeatable. Sitting down, talking to people over dinner, having multiple dinners with them, so that you can develop a relationship and share the gospel that way. I was reading an excerpt from a, a book about um, evangelism from, written by a, a campus pastor. And he was sharing the story of a young man named Miles who was a lacrosse player. Well, Miles 
started participating in these discussions on the Christian sexual ethic. And eventually he decided that he shouldn't sleep with his girlfriend anymore. So he told his girlfriend about the new arrangement and his girlfriend broke up with him. Eventually he became a Christian. And they summarize a spiritual journey in six steps. Step number one, Christians are crazy, they don't have sex. That's the first step. Two, maybe waiting until you're married to have sex isn't such a bad idea, but it's impossible. Third step, okay, I hate not having sex, but I think it's the right thing to do. Fourth, I got to think about something other than sex. Five, I never knew Jesus said all those things. Six, oh, so that's why Christians make such a huge deal about Easter. It starts here and it ends over here. And it took about a year. I mean, we live in a, uh, a post-Christian culture where there's different assumptions that people make. You know, for some people, Jesus is a historical figure, perhaps he's a cuss word, but they have no idea who he is. They don't understand that God being your creator actually matters, that you are made in the image of God. And being made in his image, you actually have an obligation to him because he created you after all. People don't understand that, that sin is transgression against God's law and that God has a prerogative to call sin, sin. People don't understand that the wages of sin is death and all that that means, not just physical death, but a separation from God. Uh, they don't understand the, the sacrificial system where God accepts substitutes for their sin. And they don't understand that on the cross, Jesus offered perfect atonement. Now, if you didn't know what I was talking about, that's because you need someone to carefully layer, give you layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. And, and frankly, there are times where, let's say Martin Luther was in a Catholic-dominated Europe. He understood the authority of the Bible. He understood a fear of the Lord. He knew about heaven and hell. He understood that Jesus' death accomplished something. He just had to tweak this one thing over here, right? Because he had a Christian foundation that, was the, that the culture just gave, and he kind of built upon it. But nowadays, we can't assume that people have that foundation. We can't assume that they have it. Where phrases like love the sin, hate the sinner makes no sense to people. People not, don't necessarily understand that your identity is something that is given to you, not something that you give yourself. So that is why walking through things slowly might be the better approach. Now, granted, if you are on an airplane that's going down into the Pacific, you might want to speed up the process. But if you have time, uh, the relationship approach, the relational approach is more than appropriate. And as long as the people were willing to listen, Jesus was willing to talk. And what's fascinating is that Jesus didn't just have dinner with the tax collectors and sinners. He also has dinner with the Pharisees. He's willing to talk to whoever, and over a three-year period of time, he made it very clear what the teaching was, and when Israel rejected it, they rejected it. Again, none of these strategies promise success in the sense of conversion, right? That's not our job. 
but they do promise success in our ability to get the gospel clearly across. Now, the third approach, the more unpleasant one, is the confrontational approach. Look at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so these are kind of like the hall monitors, right? They're standing outside, the Pharisees with their scribes, they're the parliamentarians of the law. And they inform Jesus' disciples that what Jesus is doing is out of bounds. You are not supposed to associate with sinners. Remember what Pharisee means? It means separated one. You are to come out of the darkness, be separate from sinners, and Jesus is engaged with them. And I think if we were to be honest, we can understand some of the sentiment. Consider Chad. Chad is a good Christian kid comes from a solid family, and he decides that he wants to go to high school, public school. And when he sits down for lunch, well, actually, before he sits down, he gets his lunch tray, and he has his, you know, pizza and, and chips and little Debbie's, you know, nice, healthy meal. And he's looking around at where to sit. Over there is, you know, that's where the jocks sit. You know, that might be where the beautiful people sit. Uh, the Dungeons and Dragons crowd is over there in the corner. And he decides to sit with people with blue hair, same-sex couples, and some transgender high school students. And as you see him from a distance, right, there might be some speculation. Has Chad gone to the dark side? Why is he eating with them? Why isn't he eating with maybe this Christian table over here? Right? We can understand that concern. You see, in Israel at that time, they maintained their holiness by separation. Holiness speaks of separation. The greatest threat to Israel was idol worship. And the pathway, the gateway to idol worship is to have a relationship with somebody who worships idols. As you eat with them and dine with them, you share more than food, you share thoughts and ideas, and that might lead you to soften in your opposition to it. And so one of the ways that they had to kind of separate Israel from the rest is dietary restrictions. You can eat this, but you can't eat this. It was a picture of God's holiness, but I think functionally it kept them apart. That you don't go to Gentiles' homes to eat, otherwise you might eat bacon and sin against God. My daughter was part of a, a kind of a, a co-op last year uh, at the University of Kansas, where we have a 3-0 football team. I don't, that was totally unnecessary, but it was necessary for me. <laughs> and what was interesting is part of her job was being a cook, and she'd cook for 50 people. And so she would have to make dinner, and not only would she have to make dinner, she had to, you know, keep in mind that some people are kosher, some people are vegan, some people are gluten-free, 
So try cooking for 50 people with those kinds of restrictions. It was nearly impossible. So she went to a new hall, and this time they have 50 people, but they have seven different kitchens. There's a gluten-free kitchen, a kosher kitchen, a vegan kitchen. You see, one thing that the diet can do is it kind of separates you so that you can only eat with certain people. And so that was the design of some of the food constrictions, restrictions was to separate people through a meal. And yet Jesus is going against that. Now, he's not eating unclean food, but he's eating with unclean people. But Jesus has a different strategy. His strategy is not to try to win people by being separate from them. He says in Luke 4, 18 through 19, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right? He's been sent to the poor. Now, tax collectors were not poor materially. They were poor relationally. They were socially rejected. They were socially poor. And Jesus directly engages with them. The good news is meant for them as well as everyone else. And so the Pharisees and their scribes complain to the disciples, but Jesus answers them back directly. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, right? The job of a doctor is to do what? Is to heal. And to heal, you have to be around sick people. Now, I think one of the most courageous jobs out there is an infectious disease doctor. I mean, can you imagine an infectious disease doctor coming home from work, you know, taking off his jacket? Hey, honey, I'm home. Hey, what did you do today? Well, I dealt with 10 people with COVID, saw a guy with a brain-eating amoeba. This person has suspected Ebola. I saw three people with monkeypox. Ugh, give me a kiss. Right? But here's the deal. If you're going to be an infectious disease doctor, you need to be around people with infectious diseases. It is dangerous work, but to heal, you have to be in their proximity. And so that is Jesus' job. In fact, that is the job of a shepherd in both the New Testament and even the Old Testament. In fact, one really interesting passage that I think he makes a subtle allusion to is Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, God indicts the shepherds of Israel who seem to work against God's designs to gather their flock. And some of the language here will, will, will be very familiar. Luke 34, 4 through 6. The weak, this is to these bad shepherds, you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness, you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, and none to search or seek for them. It's the job of a physician to heal the sick. I'm going to be where the sick people are. Where are you going to be? Then verse 32. I have not come 
to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. His job, his mission, is not to deal with righteous people, but to deal with sinners. And what's interesting is that these shepherds, so to speak, were too righteous to do God's work. They were too righteous to want to redeem others. See the confrontation? They were too righteous to do God's work. And, and so this is kind of tricky. The righteous, they don't need to repent, or do they? Repentance is a universal call to the righteous and the unrighteous. When he says the righteous do not need to repent, the righteous do not perceive their need to repent. We're good old boys. We do the right thing. We live rightly. We don't need to repent. Repentance, you know, go talk to those people and fix their problems. We're okay. How do you confront somebody who believes truly that they are righteous? Well, the answer is through a confrontation. You have to get them unsaved before you get them saved. Before they see their need to repent, they need to know that they are sinners. And, and this is unpleasant, <laughs> to say the least. Talking to self-righteous people, they're the most difficult gospel target. Because you can't even get to the good news because you have to show them that they need the good news. You take them through the Sermon on the Mount. You, you show them that not killing anyone is not good enough. You have to not be angry. Being faithful in your marriage is not good enough. You have to never last, lust after another person. Right? Jesus comes down hard on the self-righteous because it is a two-stage process. He doesn't say woe to sinners and tax collectors. Tax collectors and sinners already understood that they are under woe. He's able to just simply give them the good news, but with the scribes and Pharisees, those who were self-righteous, he has to indict them, challenge them, rock them, so that they will be softened to the point where they understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and we need to repent. So all of that is part of the strategy of confrontation. And again, what you use and when depends on a lot of things. Sometimes you take the direct approach, other times you take the more of the relational angle, and sometimes you just have to confront people on their sin. But what you choose and when is really governed by three principles that are true in every case. The first one is you need to engage with people. You need to engage with people. Jesus engages with Levi. Jesus engages with the tax collectors and sinners. When the Pharisees confront Jesus' disciples, it is Jesus who engages and answers back. He is engaged with them. Separation from the world is not a way of reaching the world. That is not the mission that Jesus came to do. He didn't just hole up so that he wasn't tempted, so that he can die on the cross and then have other people tell him about it. He engaged the world because that was his mission. Secondly, you're not only to engage with people, you are to seek true righteousness. Now, what's interesting with the Pharisees is they thought 
that they were pursuing true righteousness. They thought that their commitment to holiness is what kept them from being in the presence of these sinners. But Jesus actually makes an argument, and this is more clear in the Gospel of Matthew, that your motivation to avoid these sinners is a sign of your unholiness. In fact, in the parallel account in Matthew 9.13, Jesus says this, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Now, first of all, he says, go and learn. You guys need to start reading your Bible. And then when he says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, is a direct quote from Hosea 6.6. Now, do you guys know the story of Hosea? Hosea was a prophet of God. And God commanded this prophet of God to basically take a prostitute and marry her. And so he does. And his new wife, who's a prostitute, doesn't leave the profession. And yet he is still commanded to love her. And the imagery is this, that God still has a love for his bride who is unfaithful. He still has a love for Israel even though Israel prostitutes itself and worships other gods. Now, what's interesting is as they are prostituting themselves by worshiping other gods, they are still in the business of offering sacrifices to Yahweh. The temple system was still going. And so God indicts him and he says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. He's not saying stop the sacrifice, but stop sacrificing to me if you're going to go out and commit spiritually adultery with other gods. What I want more than anything is your heart, your love, and your commitment. And so when Jesus confronts these Pharisees, he's saying, you're just like those apostates in Israel, where you are going through the motions of sacrifice, but what you are missing is a heart of love for me and the people that I love. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Right? Jesus, he showed his love, didn't he? He could have stayed in heaven. And God would have been just to send every person who's ever born to hell. Did you ever think about that? God would have been perfectly just in doing so. But under the plan of God, Jesus left heaven, took on human DNA, lived life as a pauper, resisted the temptations given to him by Satan in this world, ministered sacrificially. You think about how little he slept and how little he ate and how he exhausted himself in ministry because he had a passion for glorifying God and for loving other people. You see, when you look at holiness, we often define holiness on what we don't do, right? I, I'm holy because I don't smoke drink or chew or go out with girls who do, right? That's kind of the, it's what I don't do. By not doing all these things, I'm holy. But being holy at its core is about having a sanctified love. Your holiness is defined by who you love and how you do so. And the primary, ob primary object of, of any love is a love of God, right? And that's something that Jesus demonstrates, when Jesus walks into the temple and he sees that it's basically a flea market, in John 2, 16 through 17, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
His disciples remembered what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So he turns over all the tables, runs them all out, and that was done out of a deep, profound love for the honor of God. He was driven by a love for the Lord. But there's another aspect of his love, which was a deep compassion and love for people. He sacrificed a lot so that he can take the gospel to those who needed it the most. And so when these Pharisees are opposed to that, well, they missed the point. And thirdly, you have to maintain your mission. Maintain your mission. His mission is to tell people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's very difficult to tell people to repent if you're not repenting yourself. Agreed? Going back to Chad, we might be fearful of the choices that he's making because there have been cases where in the name of evangelism, people are spending time with non-Christians because they kind of like spending time with non-Christians. And what happens is they become a thermometer where their spiritual temperature cools to match the spiritual temperature of those around them. You know, they match the environment. But when Jesus is with the tax collectors and the sinners, he's not a thermometer, he's a thermostat. He sets the temperature of the room. And so when you look at Chad, this could be a bad thing if he's just trying to blend in. But if he sets the temperature of the lunch table, and he makes it very clear, this is why I'm here. This is God's heart for you. This is what I'd love to see. I am praying for your soul well, that's a very different strategy, isn't it? And, and frankly, some people will accept him and others will reject him. You look at the tax collectors and the sinners. He shared the gospel faithfully. Some probably accepted Christ. But some of them were probably numbered among the crowd that shouted for him to be crucified. Again, he told them, he tells them, and after three years, it's like Israel just had enough. Don't mistake opposition to the gospel as failure to share the gospel. Sometimes it means that you're doing it right. But the important thing is that you stay engaged. And this is my hope for you. You know, that all of you understand that, you know, you're a different golf club and you have different environments. Sometimes the direct approach works for certain people with certain personalities, and we kind of know who they are, right? You just set them free, let them talk to people. The confrontational approach also works well for other people. They're very skilled at it, very good at getting the point across. Uh, the relational approach also is very helpful for certain times, for certain people and certain relationships. But the point is that you are engaged and you're doing it that you're loving God and that your holiness is measured not just by what you're not doing, but also by your, your love for the honor of the Lord, your desire to see him worshiped by as many people as possible, your desire to be obedient to his great commission, as well as your compassion for people where you want to warn them of the wrath to come. You see, strategic evangelism just means this. Every opportunity you have is different. So you pray for the courage and the wisdom to know which strategy to use and when. And when you do that, the Lord's honored, and who knows what will happen. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we come before you just grateful for the ministry of Jesus. And Lord, there are people in our life that we desperately want to have come to saving faith. I pray that you'll give us a burden. And I pray that you'll give us the confidence and the wisdom to know what approach, approach we need to take and when. I just pray that our church will be a church known by holiness, but holiness defined by our love for you and our love for other people. And as we walk this together, we know that sometimes um, you know, building relationships can lead to some challenges and some tolerance, but give us the wisdom to know how much we should tolerate and when. But I pray that our church will be faithful to the commission you've given us. In Christ's name, amen.